Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is May 24th, 2022, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Grace 2, Low-Risk Recurrent Abdominal Pain. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Justin Morgenstern. He is an emergency physician and creator of the FOMED project called First 10 EM. Welcome back to the SGEM, my friend. As always, Ken, it's a highlight of my month to be here. Well, you know, I'm I'm kind of disappointed because you're not going to be able to attend my Top Gun, and it's not just a party, it's a weekend. This show will be going up next weekend, and I will be celebrating the release of Top Gun Maverick without you, my friend. Yeah, you made me choose between evidence-based medicine and Top Gun, and as much as I love Top Gun, I guess I chose evidence-based medicine. Well, we will uh, be sure to be tweeting out some pictures. Uh, I've made some promises that we will live stream a rendition of She's Lost That Loving Feeling, wearing our flight suits and our aviators to all those people who can't attend. But let's get a case to frame this episode, this SGEM hot off the press episode about low-risk abdominal pain. And I imagine this case will be familiar to our listeners. So we have a 33-year-old male who presents to the emergency department complaining of abdominal pain. He states that he's had this same pain off and on for more than 10 years, and nobody's ever been able to figure out what's been going on with him. He doesn't have any new or specific symptoms today, including no fever, vomiting, diarrhea, or urinary symptoms. His vital signs are all normal. His abdomen is diffusely tender, but without any specific surgical findings. You review his chart and note that he's had five CT scans performed in the last year at your hospital alone, all of which were negative. So you're worried about the cumulative radiation dose that he's received, but you also find it hard to exclude significant pathology on history and physical alone today. After all, even patients with chronic abdominal pain can develop in new issues like appendicitis any to any presentation. Well, the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine has launched an initiative called GRACE, which stands for guidelines for reasonable and appropriate care in the emergency department. Hey, wait a minute. Shouldn't it be called graced with a D? Again, whatever the name, if they're aiming for reasonable and appropriate care, I am on board. So the first grace publication looked at low-risk chest pain, and in my opinion, they filled a very valuable role. Most guidelines focus on a single ED visit in isolation, but a patient who presents to the emergency department recurrently with the same symptoms probably requires a different approach. In the context of recurrent chest pain, they made eight key recommendations. On the SJAM episode, the bottom line was that there is moderate level of evidence that ACS can be excluded in adult patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain using a single high-sensitivity troponin below the validated threshold without further diagnostic testing in patients who've had a CCTA within the past two years showing no coronary stenosis. The writing group for GRACE 2 wanted to look at clinically relevant questions to address the care of adult patients with low-risk, recurrent, previously undifferentiated abdominal pain in the emergency department. Through consensus, four questions were developed and then a systematic review of the literature was performed. The literature was then synthesized to come up with recommendations following grade methodology. 
So that grade is one we hear all the time, but we should point out it stands for Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. It was pioneered at McMaster University with the goal of creating rigorous, transparent, and trustworthy guidelines on common clinical practice for emergency medicine physicians that are not always directly studied in EM research activities. There can be many presentations for low-risk abdominal pain, and we've covered cannabis hyperemesis on SGEM 318 and SGEM 46. We also looked at pediatric gastroenteritis on SGEM 254. All right, Justin, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast? So what are the recommendations for managing patients with low-risk, recurrent, and previously undifferentiated abdominal pain in the emergency department? And the reference. So this is Broder et al. And these are the guidelines for reasonable and appropriate care in the emergency department, GRACE 2. This is low-risk recurrent abdominal pain in the emergency department in, obviously, academic emergency medicine, May 2022, hot off the press. You're finally using the hot off the press intonation. Uh, The way you say it, I mean, I think brings so much to the episode. It is a hot off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show, Dr. Josh Ua, or Josh Broder. He is a residency program director and vice chief for education in the Division of Emergency Medicine at Duke University School of Medicine. Welcome to the SGM, Josh. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We love having the authors on. And and one of the questions we always want to get to is, How'd you end up doing research in this area? I mean, low risk, recurrent abdominal pain. When it comes up on the board, are you just jumping for joy when you see belly pain, ab pain? Oh, great. This will be another ab pain NYD, not yet diagnosed. How'd you get involved in this? I don't have a subspecialty in this particular area, but my my background is emergency medicine, but I've spent about 20 years looking at Diagnostic imaging in particular, wrote a textbook on the topic. I do a monthly column on imaging for ASEPS critical decisions in emergency medicine. So uh, believe it or not, I actually love abdominal pain. And it's just there's so much packed in there. There's so many things that frankly can go wrong that I find it a real diagnostic challenge and and I enjoy it. But uh, it it was great to get invited by SAEM to help chair this, this group. Well, it sounds like they picked someone with some really good credentials to lead this grace to initiative. So can you give your authors groups conclusions, you know, the actual conclusions from the abstract before we get to the quality checklist? No direct evidence exists to direct the care of patients with low risk, recurrent, undifferentiated abdominal pain in the emergency department. Improved definitions are required to better define this population and clinically relevant outcomes of interest should be described and studied with rigorous research methodology to inform future clinical guidelines. All right, Josh, Justin and I are just going to quickly go through a checklist and then we're going to bring you back when we're talking about the key recommendations. Justin, the study population, did it include or focus on those patients presenting to the emergency department? Yes, it did. Was an explicit and sensible process used to identify, select, and combine the evidence? Absolutely. They followed that grade methodology. The quality of the evidence was explicitly assessed using a validated instrument. Yes. An explicit and sensible process was used to the relative value of different outcomes. Yeah, I think it was. The guidelines thoughtfully balanced desirable and undesirable effects. Yes, they did. 
the guidelines accounts for important recent developments. Yeah, their search seems very thorough. The guideline has been peer-reviewed and tested. So yes, it was peer-reviewed, and no, it was not tested. Do you think the guideline is practical, actionable, and clinically important recommendations are made? It's a hard one to answer, but yes, to the best of their ability, given the absolute paucity of evidence. And the ninth and final question, the guideline author's conflicts of interest are fully reported, transparent, and unlikely to sway the recommendations of the guidelines. Yeah, I'm always happy to see this. Yes, and there were no conflicts. All right, let's go through their key recommendations. Now, we don't have a result section for this guideline, but we do have the four key recommendations. So let's go through those four recommendations and get Josh to comment on each. So recommendation number one was that in adult ED patients with low-risk recurrent undifferentiated abdominal pain and a prior negative CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis within 12 months, there is insufficient evidence to accurately identify populations in whom repeat imaging can be safely avoided or routinely recommended in the emergency department, i.e. they don't really give us a recommendation there. Well, I have to admit this was a little bit of a disappointment to me because, of course, it's fun to dig into the literature and find that that question there, the the, the answer to that that uh, daunting question. And I have I had many moments along the way where I honestly thought I'd had the eureka moment where we'd found the study or studies that had answered the question. But you know, this gets back to the whole great great process and really being transparent and uh, concrete about what our definition is. And we actually discovered along the way that there weren't good definitions to work from. We created a definition for what is a low-risk recurrent abdominal pain patient. When we started looking at studies that examined patients who underwent more than one CT, these studies really failed to tell us what kind of patients we're talking about. Was the patient who had a positive repeat CT the one who was obvious from across the room who looked like they're in septic shock, had a lactate of 20 and their white count was 30,000? Or was it the obscure patient who was just there with another visit with the same kind of pain they'd had before and we couldn't have picked them out of the crowd and yet they had some important findings? So that that kind of failure um, in research, and I say failure not not to be accusatory, but we, we didn't, you know, most of these studies didn't really set out to answer the question that we're asking. We were going to those studies and try to pull out an answer relevant to us. I don't think that this leaves us with nothing to go on. I mean, I'll commit. If, you've, I've, I'm, you know, if you want me to say what I would do in the patient you've described, I'm happy to because we all have to make these decisions on shift. I, I'm absolutely happy to hear while, while we're on the topic what, exactly what you would do with our, our opening case. Sure. Well, you know, again, I want to just lay out the ground rules. So we said low risk. We, we gave some parameters. They couldn't be a recent post-op patient. They couldn't be a trauma patient. They couldn't be pregnant. And then we left it really to that gestalt that we all bring to the situation. We didn't define a lab threshold for uh, abnormal. We said the physician had to believe they were low risk based on the information in front of them. Okay, so I'm going to assume that the patient you've described meets those parameters. And we also described that the the pain really should be, to to be called recurrent, it should be similar to pain the patient has had before. So that would be one of the key questions I would ask this patient. Is this familiar pain? And if the answer is no, this is a unique pain. Sure, I've had pain before, but this is unlike anything I've experienced. I would just evaluate as a de novo case, just like any other patient. 
if uh, the patient really says this is familiar pain, follows the same pattern, just summarized to say it's really similar to previous pain, I probably would try to look at the previous images if they were available, read the reports for anything subtle, and then make a decision with the patient. And, and I might well advise this patient that if nothing stood out as a red flag today, that we not repeat imaging. Yeah, I love that answer. That's my key question as well. I say, you know your pain better than I do. Do you think this is the same pain he's been going on for 10 years? Or do you think something new is happening today? And I think that's a key question when evaluating anybody with chronic issues. Yeah. And to, to be fair, our, our research, our, our literature search didn't find a study that could validate that that's the right way to go. So that's my my opinion. And I, I'll, I'll stand by it, but don't think that that's what the guideline specifically says. I'd like to add a few comments in there. One is, I don't know if you experience this, but with people with recurrent painful conditions, let's say like a migraine, I often get patients saying, well, it, it's a little different. It's different this time, doctor. And so I have a hard time sometimes separating that out. And I'll see that in abdominal pain uh, as well. They'll say, well, it's a little different. So how different does it have to be? You know, sure, it's easy to pick up the extremes. This is exactly the same. This is exactly like my previous pain versus this is completely new. And this time I have, you know, these different symptoms. It's usually... Um, it's just it's just a little bit different, and I was anxious. That's why I came in. Uh, the second thing that I wanted to say was to put on my rural hat and say, well, some of these places don't have CT scans, and that will come into the metric. That'll come into the decision. You know, I'll look outside here in Canada and say, hmm, it's a snowstorm. It's recurrent abdominal pain. They say it's a little bit different. Am I really going to push to get that CT scan and put that patient in the back of an ambulance and send them down the uh, rural highway to get a CT? So it takes place in a context. And I know, you know, you big city folk there uh, don't have to worry about some of these decisions. And I'm sure the guidelines didn't capture whether the rural uh, critical access hospital had a CT scanner or not. So um, it takes place in a context. I'm just putting on my rural hat for that. Totally agree. Got to consider all the risks and benefits. Uh, I, I never had to consider the risk of a snowstorm, though. That, that's, that's an impressive one. I have, you know, and you look out the window and you go, hmm, what's my pretest probability that I'm putting a crew and a nurse who has to go with the patient to the other site, which may be 45 minutes to an hour in normal conditions, and it might be much longer in a snowstorm, and is the road even open? You know, or will the road still be open? So, yeah, it's... Uh, Rural medicine. I love it. Let's get to recommendation number two, though. And this is in adult patients with low risk, recurrent, undifferentiated abdominal pain and a negative CTAP with IV contrast in the emergency department. We suggest against ultrasound unless there is concern for pelvic or biliary pathology. This is a conditional recommendation against, and it's based on very low certainty of evidence. Yeah, I think this is uh, perhaps one of the recommendations that can help emergency physicians the most. And, and I say this because I think a common practice pattern for a lot of us is that a CT is performed, and then we kind of wonder whether we're at the end of the imaging road and we can just, if the CT was negative, can we feel safe or do we need to do more? And, and more usually in my context means either right upper quadrant ultrasound, pelvic ultrasound uh, in female patients. And so we, we looked at this question and although we couldn't find direct evidence, and by direct evidence, we mean evidence that perfectly matched our question, low risk, recurrent, 
uh, and, and so forth. We, we found a lot of studies that looked at patients who did undergo an ultrasound following a CT scan. And we actually calculated a number needed to treat out of this. So what we found was that if you're looking for surgical pathology, you'd have to perform over 300 ultrasounds in order to find a single surgical case, which I think provides a lot of reassurance that on average, a patient with a negative CT does not necessarily need to undergo further uh, ultrasound evaluation. Now, you know, the caveats are pretty important. If you read our, our manuscript, we get into more detail about what the rate of findings was on pelvic um, imaging, pelvic ultrasound, or right upper quadrant ultrasound. It's still quite low, and I think it, it really gets back into that question of clinical gestalt. If, if somebody comes in and their clinical presentation sets off all of your alarm bells for ovarian torsion, work it up until you're confident that the patient does not have ovarian torsion. And, and you know, that, that we, we have to know that there's no imaging study out there that's absolutely perfect for every condition. Sometimes the right answer is OR or speaking with a consultant. So I don't, I don't mean that it's an absolute sure thing, but the odds are far in favor if the patient meets our sort of low risk prototype that if they have a negative CT, an ultrasound is unlikely to provide immediately useful information. This is where we, we had a lot of discussion in the group about, but what about finding something that might explain pain, even if it doesn't need emergency care, it might inform their follow-up, uh, it might reassure the patient or at least inform them about what to expect in the future. And so there, there's some details there and patient preferences once again may matter. The patient may care about how long they need to stay for another ultrasound, how much it's gonna cost. Um, so I would, I would just factor those in as well. And I found this interesting because it may, it may be just the scope of a giant document like this or practice patterns in different countries, different areas of the world. But this is actually maybe the inverse of the question that I really wanted you to answer for me, which is people who have pain for 10 years, I'm starting with an ultrasound almost all the time because I don't want to expose them to radiation. So I want to know if they have a completely normal ultrasound, how often do I need to go on to CT scan? It's actually the reverse question, but maybe for the next series of guidelines. Well, that's an, that's an interesting question, whether order matters. And part of the problem is that most of the studies at least were framed as they'd had a negative CT scan and then got an ultrasound. And you could wonder whether you excluded patients if their ultrasounds, you know, had, had a different result, whether that, that kind of channeled them a different direction in their evaluation. But great question. I do like that it gives us some information with regards to NNU the number needed to ultrasound, uh, because that number was fairly high. It was it. What was it again, Josh? It was close to 350. I'd have to look at the document again. Triple digits, you know, like that's that's a pretty large number. And that informs me that, you know, we can probably do these as outpatients scheduled. It doesn't have to be re done right then and there in the emergency department. It can be followed up by primary care, again, taking place in a context where Patients have access to primary care. Patients have access to come back and do the ultrasound in our healthcare system and the way it operates. But I thought that was a very useful piece of information, that the yield is going to be very, very low. And I also like that you said, it depends on your clinical judgment. And if you're concerned that it's a torsion, it's a torsion until you're reasonably assured that it's not a torsion. And so then you're going to have to push for that ultrasound then and there. All right. So recommendation number three, I think this is an important one. And we saw a similar recommendation in the GRACE-1 guidelines. So the recommendation is in adult ED patients with low risk or current undifferentiated abdominal pain, 
we suggest screening for depression and or anxiety may be performed during the ED evaluation. It's a conditional recommendation, and it's based on a very low uh, certainty of evidence. Sure. This got a lot of debate from our group, and I I think there are a number of issues that were of concern to us. So first, we looked at the question of, you know, how common are depression and anxiety in emergency department populations? And the answer is they're common. Uh, You know, depending on the study you look at, between 10 and 30 percent of patients may be affected by these. And, And actually, if you look at patients in the general or people in our population, depression and anxiety are really common conditions. And so there, there's several issues here. One is that just because you identify anxiety or depression in a, in a patient with abdominal pain does not mean it is the explanation for their pain. I mean, there, there are a whole bunch of different possibilities. They could have depression and anxiety unrelated to their pain. They could have depression and anxiety because of or contributed to because they've had ongoing pain. And anybody with ongoing pain without an explanation, I'm sure, could be subject to, to um, those conditions. Or there really could be, um, you know, a causal relationship. Maybe the somatic manifestation of depression or anxiety is their abdominal pain, or it could be a combination of all of those things. So um, we wanted to be really careful that we didn't, we were not suggesting that if you find on a screening tool that the, the patient has anxiety or depression, that you could, you know, lay down your pencil, so to speak, stop working them up. They need to be evaluated on, on their own merits. But we were concerned that. Um, this is an aspect of, of patient's care that might be neglected, that repeatedly they might be worked up for abdominal pain with sort of, you know, um, objective metrics. I say objective almost uh, skeptically. I'm on the skeptic's guide. So, you know, that, that a lab test is reassuring, a CT is reassuring. And we really, we stop, we, we decide we've, we've ruled out the acute emergency, but we're not really addressing what is going on with this patient. Why, why are they seeking care? This was a case where the patient representatives' viewpoints really mattered. We had a patient representative on our committee, and just thinking about these are conditions that also can be stigmatizing in our society, and it can be a delicate conversation. You don't want the patient to believe that you're dismissing their abdominal pain because you ask a question about depression or anxiety. The other piece is that the screening tests are quite imperfect. They are subject to false positives and false negatives like anything else. And it sort of depends on where where you start with the, the prevalence of depression or anxiety is in the population. And then there's there are um, there's a lack of the complete links in the chain. If you're uh, if you believe in you know resuscitation research, there's some people phrase it as you know the links in the chain, and um, you have to have all of the links intact in order to have a good outcome. And you know research is is out there saying you can identify patients who are at risk of depression or anxiety, but whether identifying them in the emergency department results in them doing better from their perspective, long-term, isn't so clear. It probably depends on what resources you then can offer. If you find depression or anxiety and you have nothing to offer the patient for follow-up or treatment, uh, it, it may not help their, their health outcomes. So that's why you get this conditional recommendation from us. There, there are some tantalizing leads, but we think that more research is needed before a more confident recommendation could be made. Recommendation number four, in adult ED patients with low-risk recurrent undifferentiated abdominal pain, we suggest an opioid-minimizing strategy for pain control. This was a conditional recommendation with a consensus because of no evidence. What a a tough question for uh, emergency physicians and patients. 
the patient describes excruciating pain and you know we want to make them better we don't want to contribute to a problem at the same time so we reflected extensively on this question and you know there's a lot of pain research that's published but again the populations are not described to match what we were interested in the low risk recurrent pain patient we tried to extrapolate where we could from populations that do have recurrent pain but aren't undifferentiated you know biliary colic we we have studies on biliary colic we have studies on renal colic but we don't know that the treatment for renal colic will help someone with undifferentiated uh, recurrent abdominal pain. The, we don't know what's wrong with the patient with undifferentiated uh, recurrent pain. So it's really hard to, you know, it's really speculative to think, for example, that an NSAID is the effective treatment for a disease you don't know the etiology of, or a, a presentation, a syndrome you don't know the etiology of. That left us with the question of harms. We, we couldn't really prove the benefits of, of um, necessarily treating someone, but we know the harms, um, or at least we're very familiar with the potential harms of opioids. And th that became a very compelling piece for everyone on the committee, including all the physician members and the patient representative. Well, every intervention has potential benefit and a potential harm, and where that net impact comes is so important. And so I'm glad you addressed it. And I also wanted to really recognize that how important it is to have a patient on the guidelines. You mentioned that in recommendation number three, and I wanted to highlight it because having a patient provide the values and preferences for the population. I mean, that's one of the three pillars of evidence-based medicine. We have the literature, and in this case, the literature is weak. It's We don't have a great amount of information to say, thou shalt do this. And we're, we're backing into, we really need to rely a lot on our clinical judgment, our gestalt, but we can't forget that third pillar, that patient and what they value and what they prefer. Would they like to stick around for a few more hours to get another CT scan after they've already had, as Justin said, what was it? Five scans already this year for their recurrent low risk abdominal pain. So engaging with patients, I think that's one of the real highlights of these GRACE uh, guidelines. All right, well, that's the four recommendations. I can't believe you didn't come up with five. But now we're going to talk a little nerdy. And guess what? We have five questions to ask you, Josh, about these GRACE 2 guidelines. And it'll help us better understand the publication. Justin and I are going to alternate questions, and Justin's going to go first. Yeah, so our first question is about the scope of the review. And as I was reading this, there were thousands of questions that I could imagine asking in a guideline like this. Things like, you know, what's the role of observation and repeat examinations instead of imaging? When is blood work required? What are what chronic therapeutic options should be uh, considered in the emergency department? Now, obviously, this guideline was a massive undertaking as it currently stands. So I just wonder, how did you decide on the questions that you thought were the most important to ask? Yeah, this. Uh... Grace 2 project lasted about 18 months, and, and the first several months were brainstorming on what we really wanted to tackle. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time posing questions and voting and rank ordering them. And ultimately, the questions we selected were the ones that rose to the top of that. But you can imagine there were a lot of questions that were framed around radiation exposure, 
Um, there were questions that we liked, that we were interested in, but we wondered whether they would be useful to practicing emergency physicians, just as we've been talking about in different practice settings. So you could ask the question, what about an MRI after a negative CT? But if we ended up recommending an MRI, a lot of places would probably find it difficult to offer that. Uh, what about endoscopy? I mean, there, there are many other uh, potential questions. What about starting an antidepressant empirically if you identified a patient who's screened positive for depression? So, um, you know, this process was a rich source of questions, makes me think a lot in the emergency department when I'm taking care of patients uh, uh, um, with this type of complaint. And certainly for researchers out there, I would, um, you know, ask you to look at the, the, the guts of this. There's a lot of, there are a lot of appendices. It's a huge document, I will admit, but there's a lot there. And we've done some of the hard work to, um, that hopefully will help others as we go forward and try to solve some of these problems. Josh, don't think I didn't notice you say the guts when we're talking about low risk. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. It's a dad joke right there. So <laughs> I really like what Justin said about, you know, the role of observation. Uh, I was taught that time is a great diagnostic tool and coming back to the patient's bedside and repeating the exam after a period of time. And that could have been the fifth question. It, I'm just saying. I would, I would love to have incorporated that. I think um, chronic pain is a, is a, it's an interesting question or recurrent pain. And I think asking the patient questions like, what's the typical time course of your pain? Does it, does it tend to come and go in hours or does it tend to last days at a time or longer when, when it comes on? And that, that might help me to decide how I want to handle the patient. If the patient says, usually it's gone in a few hours, I, I definitely can hold on to a patient for a few hours to figure that out. I don't know about um, holding them. I try not to keep people for days at a time in our emergency department. I, you probably have We've all run into crowding issues these days. Question number two is about pediatric patients. This guideline only applies to adults, so I want to make that clear. And those of us who work in community emergency departments or as pediatric emergency medicine specialists know that many children present with recurrent low-risk abdominal pain. Um, are there any plans for a GRACE, I don't know, 2.1 that looks at this issue? This, that's that's a great question. Um, I, I also work in pediatrics. I work about a third of my shifts taking care of, of pediatric patients. So absolutely, I'm personally interested in this. Um, we'll, we'll have to turn to the, the GRACE Steering Committee to see if we can get that on, on the radar. I think the first several topics have pertained more to adults. The next topics coming up have to do with things like dizziness um, evaluation. But you're right, pediatric patients need these questions addressed as well. I mean, one, one of the, just to kind of take a 10,000 foot view on, on GRACE, the goal is not to repeat work that's been done in other areas. So for example, if there's a well-validated guideline that exists for a defined population or disease process, we're not going to set out to go do that all over again. So you'll find there are published guidelines for things like Crohn's disease, evaluation of patients with known you know, renal colic. There are publications from diverse societies, American College of Radiology and, and others. And, and we're trying to, to fill in the, the gaps, the gaps where populations have been ignored or they're, they're so hard to define that other groups haven't tackled them. Uh, but I, I think a pediatric GRACE guideline would be a terrific idea for the future. 
All right, so we're on to nerdy question number three. It's about the uh, patient representative that we already mentioned. So in the recommendation to screen for depression, you leaned heavily on the comments of the patient representative in your group. Uh, for a scientific guideline, I mean, I think that's great practice, but I think it also might surprise people who don't do these processes a lot. So I wonder if, A, you could explain the role of a patient representative in the creation of these guidelines. And then I think maybe more my more nerdy question is the idea that you know all patients every patient I've ever met is very unique and so I wonder how representative one patient's views could be for the average patient out there. This is this is an incredibly uh, important question you've posed and I, I agree with you. I think that it let, let's be fair. Panels assembled to write guidelines are never representative. We acknowledge that, um, it, you know, they're almost always academic physicians of some kind, and those people are not picked at ran randomly selected uh, from the, the even the physician population. It's not a representative process, and we um, talked about the fact that we would like to see future grace groups have more diversity um, in uh, across the whole spectrum, practice setting race and gender and ethnicity and, and more. You could, you know, we, we all know that, that diversity is diverse. Um, but incorporating a single patient is useful. I think that the that our patient representative did a great job throughout the whole process of recentering us when the, when the conversation deviated to what's most useful to physicians, what's most useful to the health system, what do we prefer from a risk management standpoint or cost? to always bring us back and say, what about what the patient wants? What about what matters to the patient? And it was not necessarily the case that what that single patient representative, you know, I, I'm not representative of anybody. I never purport to be representative of all physicians. I'm sure that our patient representative wouldn't say that uh, her views were representative of all, of all patients, but she brought us back home to what is that um, level of concern. I would bring it back to the bedside and say, knowing that patients are different, even if we had information that told us what the average patient valued, we wouldn't know that that meant that the person in front of us valued that thing. So ask that question. Ask the patient in front of you, what do you want? What, how can we help you? What matters to you? Yeah, I really like that. And uh, it makes me think of, of course, Vulcan philosophy, like most things, makes me think of Star Trek. And, and it would be infinite diversity and infinite combinations, right? And we really need that broad representation. And at least having a patient is a huge step forward. So well done. The fourth nerdy point is about gaps in knowledge. Clearly, there are huge gaps in knowledge in this area. And that could be looked at as a glass is half full or glass is half empty. We like to be positive skeptics. And this is a real opportunity for those listening. Hello? Are you listening? You know, design a study with clinically relevant questions and proper methods to answer the question. Josh, if you could give future researchers one area that you think would have the biggest impact for patients, what would it be? Boy, that's a tough one, but I, I, I will make a stab at it. I, you know, I think you could imagine a study trying to answer a question like, you know, what's the best treatment and taking into account all of the, um, the population characteristics that we laid out. The def I think the definitions that we laid out could be helpful to future re researchers. Or we could ask, what is, what is the best diagnostic imaging test? I think that's sort of a mistake, though, because those are almost like medieval empirical 
studies. Like, let's see if I of newt is helpful. Because if how how could you guess what will be helpful to alleviate uh, the patient's symptoms if we don't know what's causing it? And you know, one of the big questions that I think uh, we should not assume is that these patients have something in common other than the clinical syndrome. We don't know that patients with recurrent undifferentiated abdominal pain all have the same thing. So the idea that they could all be diagnosed with the same test or treated with the same treatment has almost no basis. So I, I do think that fundamental questions to try to understand what is the underlying cause of these symptoms, that those are the kinds of studies that though daunting, they will require a lot of work. They, they're a better forward direction, I think, than, than trying to sort of solve it with one really smart single study. And it also might help us by making the connection to large existing bodies of knowledge and research on other topics. What, just I'm giving an example. What if we determined that some reasonable fraction of patients with recurrent pain have significant depression? Well, we have huge bodies of research on how depression is well-treated. So if you could identify those specific subgroups of patients with recurrent abdominal pain, we could potentially tie them into excellent treatment and follow-up pathways. I, I, I would, uh, if I was going to play with a study that's just fun and tags into my interest in imaging, I want to do functional MR of the brain to see if our brains know or can tell us where our pain is coming from. I think it'd be really fascinating to see if somebody's brain with appendicitis lights up in a different way from somebody with renal colic or someone who is experiencing depression or an ulcer. And uh, so if you want to fund me for, for something, that's, that's a little bit of a, a, a stab at root causes, but also um, uh, maybe a fun study to try. So what you're looking for is a tricorder then, just a... Oh, absolutely! No, I'm, I'm. Believe me, I'm, I'm a Star Trek nerd too. So you're, you, you picked. You, you said you're going to ask nerdy questions, and I, I, I have a card that proves my credentials. Just so you know. All right, so we'll move on then to our last ner- nerdy question, number five here, uh, and it's tough for this this whole uh, guideline. L- like you, as I was reading the gui- guideline, I was sort of excited that you would finally give me the answer, uh, and. <laughs> We may be a little disappointed. So the question is about making guidelines without any evidence or when evidence doesn't exist. And I'll tell you, in the past, I've been very frustrated with some guidelines because sometimes they come out and make pretty strong recommendations in the complete absence of evidence. And then often those recommendations get mixed in with and confused with recommendations that actually do have strong evidence. And that just sort of confuses us people who are just trying to practice clinically. I think this guideline did a very good job of discussing the absence of evidence and explaining why the recommendations recommendations were made. But overall, this is still a very difficult task to do without any evidence to, to, to bake on, or at least without strong evidence. So I wonder just on your general comments on what you think the best approach is to writing a guideline when you do your big search and you find out that actually we, we don't have any evidence and you sit there a little disappointed. Yeah, I I, uh, I really appreciate this question. I, I'll, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I once uh, researched, I was trying to figure out what the the basis was for epinephrine in anaphylaxis or steroids in anaphylaxis. So I did Cochrane searches on these topics and, you know, people have published those. They are the world's shortest Cochrane reviews because they basically said we, we required everything to be a randomized control trial, you know, uh, and, and guess what? They, we found zero studies that randomized people in anaphylactic shock not to get epinephrine. 
so I, I like that kind of research, but they also they don't give you a conclusion. They say we just don't know. So um, gr- gr- the grade process is designed for the real world. It is designed to allow us to to incorporate what's called indirect evidence. And and again, while indirect evidence is, for example, anything that's a, a partial match only to the question, right? The population isn't quite the same. The outcome isn't quite the same, or there's some other deviation from what you'd hope to find. And we just have to acknowledge that indirect evidence is pretty weak evidence. It doesn't mean it's completely useless. It doesn't mean you just, you know, close the book and walk away. But we should be very cautious. Sometimes indirect evidence might lead us in the wrong direction. I think what GRADE does and what our GRACE guidelines using that do is we're very transparent. I mean, again, at the cost of a a rather lengthy document, but for those who really are interested in what the basis is, it's there for you to understand what were the burdens and harms that we considered if we made a particular recommendation? Um, what are the what are the gaps in knowledge? And um, we, it's it's not that there's zero evidence, but it is evidence that is only uh, weak in, in its form. If you if you have the time, there's an accompanying editorial we wrote uh, called "The Candle in the Dark" that talks about using indirect evidence. Um, and for, you know, forever, we're going to need to use indirect evidence. There will never be a day when every clinical question we could pose is perfectly answered by a targeted study. So um, that's the real world we live in and, and we'll adapt every shift. You know, my next shift, I'm sure I will have to use indirect evidence to inform uh, my decision making. So, Josh, thanks for answering our five nerdy questions. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the GRACE 2 guidelines or the topic of recurrent low-risk abdominal pain in general? I just think that uh, this is sort of a liberating moment um, when to use our clinical gestalt and to be doctors and to engage patients. Um, you know, it, medicine is easy when there's a concrete answer. You know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time debating whether I should give aspirin to someone who's having a myocardial infarction. But here's a case where we really need to bring all of our skill and experience and communication abilities to bear to try to get to the right answer for each individual patient. All right, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. So we agree with the author's conclusions that there's no direct evidence to guide our management of patients with low risk recurrent undifferentiated abdominal pain. And Justin, can you give an SGEM bottom line? Yeah. So given the lack of direct evidence available to guide us, there is tremendous uncertainty about the most appropriate management plan for these patients. We should be open about that uncertainty with our patients and involve them in shared decision-making to ensure that the chosen management plan matches their personal values. And how about the case resolution? And and we know how Josh was going to resolve it. And you know that my answer would be, it all depends. So what's your case resolution? Yeah, I think it's not all that uh, dissimilar. So we said we discussed the potential harms and potential benefits of repeat imaging with the patient and ultimately opted for repeat exams over a brief period of observation and then a rapid follow-up with his primary care provider. Uh, We treated his pain effectively with non-opioid analgesia and we did discuss depression and anxiety and he admits that his recurrent abdominal pain has been causing significant anxiety, but he's already been talking to his family doctor about that. So how are you going to take GRACE2 and apply it clinically? Although I have to say I'm rather disappointed by the current lack of evidence, uncertainty is a core skill of emergency medicine. 
So in some ways, I see the lack of clear science as freeing us up a little bit. It frees us up to use our clinical judgment and to talk to patients to develop individualized treatment plans that suit their values the best. And what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? So I'd say something along the lines of, unfortunately, despite the fact that recurrent abdominal pain is very common, there's actually very little good science to guide, to guide us. You've been through these symptoms many times before, so you know it's unlikely that a repeat CT scan is going to provide us with an answer today. However, we never want to miss anything in the emergency department, and there's always a risk that something new could be happening today. So let's take some time and talk about the specific risks and benefits, and then you can help me decide what the best management plan is. All right, it's time for the Keener Contest, and last week's winner was Dr. Gregory Yates from Manchester. He knew the muscle relaxant Chiare was the poison used by natives in the Amazon basin in South America on the tips of their arrows to produce death by skeletal muscle paralysis. Justin, what's the question this week? Again, it looks like you picked a question that I don't know the answer to, so I might be embarrassing myself here. But the question is, who was the famous actor who used to say, good night, Gracie? Yeah, I'm showing my age then there. But if you know who this famous actor was who used to say, good night, Gracie, then send an email to the SGEM at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. And of course, this was an S-Gem hot off the press, and that means we want everybody to be involved. It's your turn. Did you have thoughts or questions about this episode? You know to tweet it using that hashtag S-Gem hop. And if you have questions directly for this Grace 2 team, head on over to the S-Gem blog and leave them down at the bottom in the comment section, and the team will be involved and happy to answer your questions. And don't forget, if you are a member of Academic Emergency Medicine, you can head over to the AEM homepage and get some CME credits for this podcast and article, and we'll put the process in the blog. Well, thank you, Justin, for helping me digest this very large document. I see what you did there. It was my pleasure. I got, I got to say, evidence-based medicine is, is a meal more enjoyed when it's done with friends. Ah, nicely said. And thank you, Josh, for coming on and talking nerdy with us. My pleasure. Can you give the SGEM tagline in your best North Carolina accent? Oh, boy, I don't want to. You know, I grew up in North Carolina, but I can only, my parents' influence is there. So remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Mm-hmm.